Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canale and welcome back to Before the Lights podcast. The show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Joining me today is a rock singer, songwriter, musician, record producer. He sold more than a million albums in the United States, plays guitar and bass. He's been active since 1978, is an instrumentalist, has 15 studio albums, and is one of the top pop artists in America. A Lincoln, Nebraska native, currently residing in Omaha, Nebraska. His new release in 2021 is entitled Cat's Paw. Please welcome to the show, Matthew Sweet. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. I want to start here with you. What is your first memory when you knew you were in love with music? Wow, that's such a great question. Um, you know, I like listening to music, I think, from when I was pretty young. Uh, I didn't grow up in a household where my parents were big uh, record buyers, really. Um, so I don't have that thing some people have where, you know, their parents taught them all about the history of music and all the great old records. Sure. Um, I think for me, though, when I really fell in love with music was when I started playing instruments. And there was just something about that. I could kind of lose myself in it. Uh, where it was just brought me a lot of pleasure. And uh, the first, you know, serious, you know, I played a little bit of a, like the recorder probably when I was in like third or fourth grade, fifth grade, I played the violin for a little while in the junior youth orchestra. And uh, late that fifth grade year, I, um, got an electric bass guitar mm. and I really got it because I thought electric instruments looked really cool. Um, you know, I like, uh, like, uh, electric light orchestra because, you know, they had electric violins and I had been playing the violin and, uh, I was just at a music store and saw some, you know, electric guitars and thought those looked super cool and kind of space age, you know? So I didn't know too much what I was doing at first. And I remember I went to a guy who was running the stage band at my grade school, um, which I believe was mostly sixth graders. And uh, I said, which one should I get? The one with six strings or four strings? And he said, well, you know, we could really use that four string one. (laughs) <laughs> which, of course, was the bass guitar rather than a regular electric guitar. It was the electric bass. So that's what I got, this little uh, Unibox uh, bass guitar with a matching amp. You know, real inexpensive, but a great way to sort of learn and start out. And uh, there was just something about, you know, being in my room and on my own and and uh, playing the bass, I really learned mostly from listening along to records and learning the bass parts off them, sort of by ear. Um, I learned kind of what the basic notes were from a, a bass method book by Carol Kay, a famous uh, 60s bass player. And in fact, many, many years later in the late 90s, 
uh, Carol ended up playing on a, on a few songs of mine on a record of mine called In Reverse. So uh, that was kind of cool. You know, I yeah. still had my uh, bass method book, you know, where I learned what the four notes were and how to tune it and what they looked like sort of in a scale. I've never really been able to read music very well, but that, that gave me the basics that I needed to start learning to play the bass guitar. And so it was out of that that I really got into music more deeply. And a lot of the records I first bought, I learned to play the bass lines off them. And that uh, led me to being pretty, I was pretty accomplished on the bass uh, quite young. I would say when I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old, I could really kind of play it. So, um uh, so that was a, that was the big influence, I think, that when I first thought, you know, I could do something with it. Maybe I could be a studio bass player or something. In the 80s, in high school, you attended Lincoln Southeast. You wrote some songs and you put them on, which I'm assuming most of my listeners, if I, uh, in the demographics, will remember the four track cassettes. And if you don't, use Google, <laughs> go search them. <laughs> And uh, if you would, Matthew, talk about the band, The Specs. Okay. Well, The Specs were, you know, uh, I guess we were sort of a new wave group, you would call it. Um, kind of new wave punk invasion. We played a lot of songs by British groups. Um, stuff like, uh, you know, The Jam and mm. The Buzzcocks and Generation X. And, uh, you know, sometimes more well-known things like, you know, uh, stuff by like the police or, uh, uh, you know, maybe we do like a Joe Jackson hit, you know, and then we would also play a few sort of 60s songs. I remember we did, uh, For Your Love by the Yardbirds. Um, we used to do My Generation by The Who. And it was like a big number for me because I got to uh, play sort of the, the little bass solo on it that John Entwistle did. <laughs> and I, I'm not 100% on this, but I think maybe I sang My Generation as well. So that might have been one of my first real experiences actually going up and being a singer because I wasn't the singer per se in the spec. Uh, we eventually had a girl singer, uh, Sarah Cavanda, in the band. And uh, I did write a song that uh, we uh, submitted to a local radio station uh, called KFMQ. They made uh, an album of regional or local bands every year. And uh, it was called the Homegrown Album. And uh, I wrote a song that we recorded with uh, the band, with Sarah singing. And uh, that song got on the Homegrown album. So that's the specs, you know, moment of, of making a record. You know, I don't, I don't think uh, we made any other records <laughs> that I can recall. <laughs> Although I think we did record maybe three or four songs. I'm just not sure what those were now. Um, but that was the first time I was ever in a rec recording studio. And so I kind of saw how that worked, but I was at home learning 
to make multi-tracks on my own um, with a four-track cassette recorder. And, you know, what those were was a way to inexpensively record multi-track at home without having to get a big reel-to-reel multi-track deck, and mm-hmm. which would have been, you know, infinitely more expensive. I mean, I think the, the uh, uh, four-track uh, cassette recorders were probably three or four hundred bucks, you know, once they'd been out just a little while, they kind of, they probably were more than that in the very beginning. But by the time I got one, I think it was sort of in that range. And even though that is a huge amount of money for a kid, um, it still made it available to so many more people to be able to make multi-tracks. And it was really when I made multi-track recording and sort of sang a vocal along with myself on another track. Um, there was something really cool about that, that, that I really liked. And so that just added in and kind of led me toward wanting to try to write music and, uh, make songs and stuff. I didn't really think of, think like I was going to be a solo artist, you know, like I ended up being. Um, I just don't think I was quite to where I could sort of think of it that way um but i still was really enjoying you know the artistic uh effort of being able to kind of be it was important nobody was watching or listening (laughs) um because i was sort of just kind of you know self-conscious about it all um but uh but you know i was able to experiment because i had that four track And, and i think of myself as coming from a generation of people that were able to do that for the first time. And, uh, so I, for sure, my music started out, um, with me making multi-tracks all on my own. And rather than being out playing with a band, telling them, you know, what to play. You end up going to Athens, Georgia for college, which was really a hot spot for the music scene. at that time, and then in 84, you're with a duo called Buzz of Delight, and you signed a solo deal with Columbia from that. How were you discovered by Columbia through that duo? Uh, well, let's see. You know, I moved to Athens because I met some of the guys in REM, and they were kind of on the rise. They, When I saw them play locally, they'd made 145 that was like on their own uh, independent label called Hip Tone. And uh, then they came through town again. I was still in high school, and they'd made a, an EP for IRS records. And then by the time I got out of high school, 83, and when I moved, they made Murmur, their first full album. And so I'd met them. I sort of played a little bit of music for them, and they um, and a couple of other people in Athens wrote postcards to me when I was still in high school. It's hard to imagine it now but you know we didn't have any way to communicate other than letters you Mm -hmm. know back then (laughs) right there was no internet yet and so anyway i played with uh a few different people in athens and one of the people was this guy david pierce and david was the drummer in buzz of delight and i kind of wrote the songs and played the the minimal instrument that was in it which was kind of a hybrid of a guitar and a bass and 
So we made an EP of, I believe, six songs on a record company called DB Records out of Atlanta. And uh, after we made that, we did some recordings in Atlanta uh, for what was going to be a full-length Buzzard Delight album. And I had a tape of that, and I asked uh, R.E.M.'s manager, a guy named Jefferson Holt, um, who I was friendly with, um, I asked him if he knew anybody, like, maybe I should send it to. And he gave me the name of this guy named Steve Albofsky, and Steve was eventually the one that signed me. He was at the time at a different label, and uh, he called me, and we kind of talked about my music, you know, probably a year before he ever signed me. And then we kind of kept in touch, and I would send him new things when I would do demos at home or whatever. And uh, I'd really only been in Athens for two years when uh, they invited me up to New York and um, Steve and a guy named Rick Chertoff, who was a high, high up A&R guy at Columbia, um, I had a meeting with them, and they said, you know, we think you should be a solo artist and use your real name and kind of, you know, learn to do that. Whereas I might have had a thing that was kind of mine, but maybe used the group name a little more, kind of like Buzz of the Light, although I don't mean to shaft david because we it was our own little kind of art rock thing that it was you know so i kind of had to start over and try and figure out who i was as a person but i wasn't going to turn down columbia records saying you know we want to give you this development deal so i moved to new york kind of at their behest in the about may of 1985 so i was in athens just about two years and so I had this record deal before um, I turned uh, 21. I guess I was just 20 when I signed the deal. Um, and so, you know, I was pretty wide-eyed still and had just a lot to learn ahead of me. On that heels... Your debut solo LP was Inside that came out in 86. You also released Earth with A&M Records. And then in 91, you released the pop rock LP Girlfriend, which had a top 10 single. Mike, before we get into Girlfriend, Matthew, my question is, was this LP retitled? And if so, what was the original name going to be? <laughs> it sounds like you have secret information on that, possibly. <laughs> um yeah, it was actually titled Nothing Last uh, after one of the, actually it's a bonus track that's on the Girlfriend album in kind of the nether world of the very end of the record. There's kind of a big space and then there were three more songs because we just wanted to put everything we did on it, even though, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know, it would have been okay not to. Well, now it's just part of it, so never say, uh, I, I never look back and with any regret, you know? Sure. Um, but, uh, the thing with the girlfriend album is, uh, I really wanted to use this photo of Tuesday Wells, the actress for the cover of the record. 
And even though there were people that were kind of doing that sort of thing, like having it not be a picture of themselves, you know, um, I got a lot of pushback. Um, the label just wanted me to have kind of a picture of myself. And I really wanted to use this picture of uh, Tuesday Wells. So I kind of held fast and we went through various stages, sending her the lyrics and having her listen to it. And finally, she gave her approval that I could use the photo. So we got the artwork together and, you know, it was made as a record for A&M, um, a second album for A&M, but uh, Polygram bought them right during that time. So we ended up selling uh, the record to a new BMG startup called Zoo Entertainment. And uh, so it almost kind of didn't come out. And then at the last minute, um, somebody in, I believe, the legal department at the label, I don't know why they did this, but they decided to call up Tuesday Wells' representation and say, does she know the album is called Nothing Lasts? And, you know, the title Nothing Lasts had nothing to do with the Tuesday Wells photo. It wasn't trying to say she didn't last or something from right. being this beautiful young girl. I liked the photo because she looked, she was so young, but she sort of seemed like she felt like she knew everything, you know. And there was just something about that photo that I liked representing my album. And maybe it was an attempt to somehow get me to not have Tuesday Weld on the cover. <laughs> I don't really know. But I got a call one day and they said, well, you can't use Tuesday Weld if it's called Nothing Laughs. And so I, and I think I kind of had thought about other things to call it. And so I just was like, okay, I'll call it Girlfriend. Like, that's how bad I wanted the Tuesday Weld photo, that I didn't really even care what the album title was as long as I got that photo. And the photo is... I mean, it's, it's synonymous with that LP and that song. So I'm glad I got it. You know, I think it was worth it to change the title. Although I swear if no one had called up, you know, she probably wouldn't even have thought anything of it either. You know, Uh huh. I was a uh, mobile DJ at the time and I can remember playing the hell out of girlfriend, no matter where I went. And to look back and think that that song is almost 30 years old is mind blowing to me. And it still resonates today if you listen to it. How does it feel for you, Matthew, having that top 10 single, looking back almost 30 years later going, people are still asking about this song? Uh, well, I love that there are still people because that allows me to have an audience when I go out on the road and and uh, when I make you know new recordings. It's not you know giant like back in my heyday, but it's just, people are connected enough to it that, 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 that it's kept things kind of going for me. And I think, I think either way I'd have kept making music, even if it was just without an audience, but to have that is really special. And to be the times when I go out or even when I do things online now, I occasionally do like a Facebook thing. It's so heartwarming how much it means to people and what nice things they say and uh, music's just got a special place in people's lives. And even though that's changed a lot 
in, in our kind of modern era because there's we have we have such a connection to everything now. You know, music isn't maybe doesn't have the same place in everyone's lives exactly like it did to us back then. You know, where it was kind of one of the only things you had. You know, you went in your room alone with your records. You know, you mm-hmm. didn't go in there to like surf the web. You know? <laughs> so, this is true. Um, so, you know, um, I feel really lucky. I feel old. You know, I can't believe it's been that long. It's just mind-blowing, you know? <laughs> just it is. How long some things have been. Yeah, I went on a... My publishing company, you know, started out, I signed with uh, CBS Songs in 1985. And uh, it got, you know, purchased over the years. It's been involved with Sony for a long time and they just kind of rebranded from being called Sony ATV to just Sony music publishing. And, uh, they have like a new website and they kind of sent me, uh, codes and credentials so I could sign onto this website and kind of see all my publishing stuff. And, uh, you know, I make little bits from publishing now, but I am, at least recouped, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was looking at it the other night and realized I'd been under the, essentially the same publishing contract for 36 years, wow. <laughs> which is just like, I just can't fathom it, you know? So I feel lucky to still have that. Uh, it's been such a weird time, you know, over the course of the pandemic, because, you know, most people like me, we make our living um, playing live shows more than anything else, you know, at this mm-hmm. point in our careers. So that's just sort of been gone, you know. So, I mean, I was lucky enough I'd made an album right before the pandemic that was done. And I could sort of look around as weird as the time was and find somebody uh, who ended up being uh, Omnivore Recordings to put the record out. So that gave me kind of a bright spot during it, but it's been kind of a, a shake-up time for for people like me. And then, you know, I swear I, I had an interview. I've done a, a lot of interviews for the new record, and on one of the first ones, someone said, "How does it feel uh, to for girlfriend to be thirty years old this year?" And like, I didn't even know. Like, I hadn't <laughs> even wasn't on my radar for some reason that it was the 30th anniversary. So yeah, it just keeps getting longer and longer ago. <laughs> it does. I got a lot of questions on cat's paw that I'm going to get to before I get to that. I want to talk a couple more things in 1988. You put out a version of Walter Egan's magnet and steel that was recorded on Sabrina, the teenage witch LP with Lindsay Buckingham. Two questions in regards to this is, how was it working with Lindsey Buckingham? And secondly, how did you come up with this song? I got to tell you, I'm addicted to this song. I, I, if I start listening to it, I listen to it on repeat. It is magnificently done. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, well, I was in um, the studio recording uh, for that soundtrack. And uh, I don't know how we came up with doing Magnet and Steel, but I mean, the funny coincidence is that if I'm not mistaken, I think Lindsay maybe produced the original Magnet and Steel. 
Mm. Uh, Liz Walter. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. But we should, we could look it up pretty easily. And, uh, I had met some of the Fleetwood Mac people. Mick Fleetwood played a little bit on my album, Altered Seas. And, uh, so, and I knew Richard Gashett who worked with me uh, in producing that album. And so I had a little connection to them, but I'd never met Lindsay. And, uh, a uh, guy who was producing that recording uh, named Ralph Saul, um, he was just uh, not shy. And so he said, I mean, I'll go over and ask Lindsay, you know, if he'll come play on something. And so he went, you know, Lindsay was recording in a separate building from where we were. Uh, at uh, what was then called Ocean Way Recording. And uh, uh, so Lindsay, I think, was working in the room where they recorded Pet Sound. And he came over and brought that iconic Turner guitar that you think of when you think of Lindsay. It kind of looks almost like a little acoustic guitar that's an electric guitar. Yeah. And uh, so he had that with him, and we hung out, and he was real easygoing. We, you know, smoked pot together and he let me hold the guitar, you know, and I was just in awe because, you know, I'm a, a really, really big fan of Lindsay, that era of Fleetwood Mac, really all the eras I like. Um, even back, back to the early Peter Green stuff. And so it was just kind of like a dream, you know, he came and he played some guitar if I'm not mistaken, he also maybe sang a little bit on that track. I just get it kind of mixed up with some other ones we did during that same time period in that studio. Um, but uh, the other really cool thing about it was then I met Walter Egan. He came to oh, wow. a show I was playing in Nashville. And... Um, and he, I remember, you know, for a while we were playing, you know, some certain club down there and I must've seen him two or three times come around to our shows and we'd chat and kind of hang out. And he was a great guy and still busy writing songs and doing his thing. So, um, it was all around, a, a happy experience. And I don't know, it's just one of those singles, I guess. Um, I can't remember if the movie wanted that song or what exactly, but, uh, you know, the original was sort of a classic and, uh, you know, uh, I was just doing my uh, little cover of it. I think I may have the original on 45 actually somewhere in a collection. Yeah, that's <laughs> how you'd want it. Right. In 2001, you did Sail on Sailor with Darius Rucker for a tribute to Brian Wilson. How was it actually performing the song with Brian on Letterman? Uh, it was great. Um, it was a, actually a, a big deal because I had spent, I had a terrible fear of flying. And I spent just about eight years uh, not flying at all. And uh, I was, I'd gone to New York to rehearse for this uh, Radio City Music Hall tribute to Brian. And then gone, you know, traveled across the states back to L.A. 
And then they got this offer to do the Letterman show. And they said, you know, they want you and Darius to sing Sail on Sailor, and then you're all going to do Good Vibrations with Brian. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, (laughs) of course. And the thing was, it was coming up really soon, and there was no way for me to travel by land and get there in time to do it. So I already was getting close to flying for the first time in a long time, because later that summer, that year, I flew to Japan. I had a Japan show booked, so I knew I was going to start flying again. But I hadn't done it yet. And they said, well, we're going to put you in first class with Brian Wilson to go to New York and do this Letterman show. And... I was like, great. If it goes down, I'll be like the big bopper and my name will be forever connected to this super genius guy. (laughs) Um, Of course, Brian doesn't like flying any more than I do probably. So um, he was kind of in his own world on the plane anyway. But uh, that's how I met. um, I met his daughters, uh, Wendy and Carney, and a lot of the people in his band who I became friendly with a guy named Jeff Foskett, who was kind of the Brian-like guy that they would tour with for a really long time. And uh, they were all so nice to me, and his daughters knew how afraid to fly I was, so they would come around and kind of say, are you okay, (laughs) and everything. And they were just a really, really great bunch of people. And we had a great time doing the show. Um, It's just kind of surreal to me now to think that it ever happened, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the, doing the tribute was amazing. A lot of really great artists I got to meet, um, you know, like Elton John and uh, uh, David Crosby was there. You know, it was just like people who, you know, were amazing. So it was, it was great to be a part of it. And over the years afterwards, I did, see Brian quite a few times. I became pretty friendly with uh, uh, Van Dyke Parks for for a while, and he worked on an album with me at my house. And so, uh, you know, there's a big place in my heart for the Beach Boys and for Brian and everybody sort of in that orbit, you know. I can see why. You did Under the Covers. There's three volumes. It features covers of popular songs. The first volume's the 1960s. The second one's the 1970s. The third one's the 1980s. It's done with Susanna Hoffs of the Bengals. There's a box set completely under the covers if you can find it. Matthew, there's just endless opportunities to put classic songs in those three decades how did you narrow down to pick the songs that you did for each one? Were they personal favorites or they ones that you've always wanted to record? How'd that go? It was kind of a mix of things. Like usually the two of us had a kind of core list that we came to each other with. And usually on that, there were a handful of things that were the same, like that we, you know, it was like uncanny because we picked the same things even when they were sort of obscure, you know. And then um, sometimes we would just think of a song or hear a song or one of us would hear it and think, 
oh my God, what if we tried to cover that song? I mean, sometimes it was sheerly like just the challenge of something that like seemed like it would be impossible, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how we ended up covering things like, you know, I've seen all good people by Yes or Monday, Monday by the Mamas and the Papas. Like those were things that we picked because it was such a challenge kind of to do them, you know? And, uh, so, I don't know. It's just a mix of things. Every now and then, one or the other of us would have something that we we were the fan of. We'd just kind of talk the other one into it. But mostly, um, we just like a lot of the same kind of stuff. And we tried to break it up and not have it all be obscure stuff to sometimes, you know, tackle hits that you wouldn't think we would, you know, just to kind of spice it up a little bit and make it fun for ourselves. So, you know, we did three whole decades of stuff, and we're actually talking uh, lately about doing a 90s one. So a fourth uh, a fourth album of stuff is probably uh, in the works sometime in the next year or two. I wondered if the 90s were coming, so... It's uh, it's it's great to listen to, and the way I listen to it, people. If you would like to, I'm going to put links in the show notes where you can get uh, information how to listen to all these things of Matthews. I just turned it on, didn't even kind of look at the track list, and it was more enjoyable that way for me to hear each song going. Whoa, there's another one I forgot about, and uh, they're, they're all <laughs> yeah, they're all very well done. In 2014, you were featured on The Simpsons. You wrote "Hoping for a Dream." On not so much that, but did you also do a guest voice appearance for The Simpsons? Um, that's a good question. I think I did do some a voice thing on that episode, but it was really small. I can't think who it was exactly. Maybe one of the guys in that band. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure, but what the, the what stuck out to me, uh, which you will totally understand from our talk today is the episode is really centered around uh, Homer deciding he's going to play the bass guitar. Ah. And it's funny because he goes to a music store and he gets kind of, you know, railroaded (laughs) to buy all this equipment. And um, he doesn't know really like the difference between a bass or guitar or anything. It reminds me of me when I was little. And uh, and they, they're like, you seem to have the fingers of a bass man, you know? <laughs> and so Homer gets all this gear, and, you know, it's like a guitar center type place. And he goes home, and he starts playing the bass, and he's just, like, obsessed with it. And what was exciting is I got to do all the bass playing of Homer learning to play bass. And, you know, they have him, like... Uh, pluck the bass and then like you know, the butter vibrates across the table at dinner you know <laughs> uh, you know to get the rolls or whatever and then uh, he he's like driving in his car and like uh, he's playing the bass while he drives and it's like when he speeds up it goes faster and he slows down and it slows back down and there were just all these kind of funny bass gags and so to me the really exciting part was getting to be Homer playing bass even though everything I played was really very simple 
And then I, I wrote the song that the uh, band that comes to town and sort of breaks up uh, uh, Homer's band uh, because they take, I can't remember, they take the singer, I think, is Apu, and he goes and, you know, auditions and gets the job singing for, like, the big famous band that did the song. And uh, so it's, you know, uh, uh, Homer is heartbroken. And it's, it's a really funny episode. So I was really flattered to uh, get to do it. And uh, it's, it's a happy memory. Yeah. So I knew some of the writers. I knew a few comedy writers when I lived in Los Angeles uh, for 20 years. And some, quite a few of them came out of writing for The Simpsons. And some of them were still there, you know. So it was like kind of through a connection. I was lucky and got that gig. It's pretty cool that you can say you're, you're on an f- episode of The uh, Simpsons and played bass for Homer. So that's pretty cool. In tw- there it is. Yeah. yeah. In 2021, you released Cat Spa. It's on Omnivore Records. It, you recorded in your home studio and did everything except the drums, which was done by Rick Menick, who's been with you for a very long time. It's your first solo effort on lead guitar. Let's let's start here because I have some questions with it. Where did the inspiration for the songs come from? Um. I don't know exactly, you know, it's kind of like I always approach an album. I sort of, when I know I'm going to do one, I will kind of set aside, you know, an hour or two each day where I just sit down and sort of brainstorm Mm -hmm. and I'll come up with little ideas that often don't have that much to them. Occasionally a few sort of things where I have a little bit of words only most more more often though I have melodies sort of first and some chords and then after I've done that for a while and I've amassed a bunch of these little ideas I will go through them all and I'll think you know oh, I remember this one I know what I could do with it and uh, just kind of pick the ones that sort of jog my memory and then they kind of evolve into songs and so it's kind of a mysterious process a little bit like, you know, receiving signals from outer space or something. (laughs) Um, So, like, I didn't really, I don't know what really made me do those songs, but those were the ones that I kind of had to work with. And before that, I had already been thinking, one of these days I'm going to make an album and I'll try to play lead guitar myself on it. And... It, I just decided I would do it. It, it, it. Although it seems kind of like my pandemic album, it really was recorded in 2019, the year before the pandemic. And I mastered it in the beginning of 2020, right before uh, things really blew up and, it, and everything kind of closed down. So um, I don't know if I would have been able to come up with an album. I know a lot of people did creative stuff during the pandemic year. But for me, I felt kind of a little bit frozen and weird about it. So I was really happy. I already had this album and amazingly, I was able to hook up with Omnivore who wanted to put it out, even though it was such a crazy time. And so that gave me a bright spot in 2020 to look forward to the January release of it. 
and, uh, you know, work on the artwork and do, um, these things. So, and I played lead guitar on it, which is, you know, a thing I'd really wanted to do. So I didn't know how really people would react to it, but it's been really nice surprise how much, uh, how many really good reviews it's gotten and, uh, and really had done a whole lot of press on it more than, than I think even usual. Maybe there's a little bit of a thirst for music out there and for people to get back to their jobs and write about music and <laughs> receive music or something. It's done well. I, I enjoyed it myself. And another question I have in regards to this LP is, did you take anything from like past albums and past experiences that you used on this one, knowing that you were going to do the uh, lead guitar yourself? Well, I mean, I think that on a basic level, I've gotten to play with so many great guitar players and tour with great guitar players. Um, You know, to some extent, I think there's a little bit of an osmosis sort of thing where I just absorb some of their approaches a little bit, you know, even though I really never sat down with anyone and said, you know, teach me how you do what you do or anything like that. I still feel like, you know, the spirit of all the guys I worked with is kind of, you know, in there. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering exactly what your question was. No, you are Um, spot on. Oh, great. But, uh, I, you know, it was just something I didn't really know what to think about it. But I had that feeling. And in fact, I remembered sometime last year, I think after I sort of finished the album, I remember I had this memory from when I was real young. I think maybe first couple years I was playing bass. So I might have even been, you know, 12 or something. And I remember thinking I had this like daydream that even if I didn't play my bass, or practice for like some amount of time, you know, a week or two or something that somehow in my mind, I would kind of develop as a bass player, even though I wasn't playing or practicing. (laughs) It's a weird concept, but I just remember having these sort of thoughts about it. And I remember, I also thought to myself, I wonder if when I'm old, I'll just be able to play lead guitar, even though I never learned it. I'll just kind of know how. And it's such an odd sort of memory. And I was kind of able to, and I didn't ever really learn it. (laughs) So um, there's something to be said for just being around great players for a long time. And maybe it just helps you sort of uh, understand. I think the important thing I get from other people is the feeling of expressing yourself, you know, Mm. what that sort of feels like. And so even if technically I don't really approach things the same way, maybe I, I copped a little bit of the sort of feeling of the expression, um, when you're, uh, doing that kind of improvisation and playing over something and not really knowing exactly what you're going to play. And I really tried to not overwork it. 
and to make sure it was spontaneous. And uh, it just seemed to kind of work out. Any kind of live stream or tour dates coming up for you? Uh, I've been doing pretty frequent little live streams on Facebook, really just this year since January. I know everybody did it last year, but I kind of, I don't know. I didn't feel like immediately going and begging attention when the pandemic was first sort of hitting. It just seemed kind of weird to me or something. But finally, my manager talked me into doing it in January, and now I've done it a few times, and it's been fun. So I will be doing more of those. As far as concerts, we just don't quite know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we think maybe in the fall, a few scattered things. We don't know if, you know, maybe I'll have to kind of go out as a duo or a trio at first until we can get big enough uh, offers to be, you know, taking the whole band out again. I mean, it's really, you know, the clubs have been stopped in their tracks. So, um, you know, when it shakes out who's left surviving, um, you know, there's also going to be just a gigantic glut of artists who want to book the club, you know? Sure. So I just am not sure how quickly we'll be able to go back to the old way of going out for three or four weeks at a time. Um, but I think we will get back there eventually. So, you know, I may have recorded another album before we're really touring that much, but, uh, I, I guess I would say I hope by next year it'll really be getting back to normal. I think it's possible we'll play shows uh, towards the fall, but I just don't know for sure. Yeah, I think we're all hoping that. Listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes, Matthew's Facebook page, so you guys can uh, check out when he's going to be live streaming. Also, the website is matthewsweet.com. That is matthewsweet.com. Matthew, thank you for taking time out of your schedule and everything you do and being part of Before the Lights and joining me today. I I greatly appreciate this. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your uh, uh, coverage. I can't wait to uh, get reviews back on this show. I think it's going to go over fairly well. Oh, that's good. Listeners, if you'd like to hear the extra five, which is coming up with Matthew Sweet, you need to go to patreon.com slash before the lights. That's patreon.com slash before the lights. Also, When you join the Patreon BTL crew, one time a month, I do a Zoom call and I bring on a former guest and you can uh, interact and talk with the former guest if you would like as well. If you'd like to donate and keep this a listener supported show, go to beforethelightspod.com. You'll see the donate page and anything you can and are willing to offer is always greatly appreciated. If you would go to the Instagram page before the lights podcast and follow me there. Thank you for listening to before the lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin.